Hello, listeners. It's Jennifer James of the Common Mystics Podcast. If you're wondering how to tap into your own Spideys, I've got great news for you. The first ever Common Mystics online class will be offered virtually in February 2024. The Psychic Clairs is a five-part workshop designed to awaken your psychic senses and provide you with the feedback and tools you need to take them to the next level. For more information on the Common Mystics Psychic Clairs Workshop, email us at commonmystics at gmail.com and include the subject line Psychic Workshop. And now, on to the show. Hey guys, it's Jill. Jen and I wanted to give you a heads up about the content on today's episode. It may be triggering for more sensitive audiences. Refer to the show notes for more specifics. And take care while you listen. On this episode of Common Mystics, we delve into a devastating cold case, the murder of two young sisters in 1956. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are Common Mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places, and today's story takes us to Chicago, Illinois. Guys, you know what we do. They know what we do, Jennifer. We drive around the continental United States looking for verifiable stories previously unknown to us that give voice to the voiceless. And we're led by the spirits. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. But sometimes, Jennifer, sometimes when we do the research and we find our verifiable story that gives voice to the voiceless that was previously unknown to us. (laughs) Yes, Jill. Sometimes we discover another story that just won't leave us. That's right. And this is one of those cases with the Grimes sisters. Yeah, this one, this one is tough. So, so tough. yeah, you know, listeners use discretion. I think it's fair to say that this one is really tough, and this one kept Jennifer up at night. Mm-hmm. And again, she had the red line. She was making connections. She was solving this case. <laughs> well, here's how it started. You and I had decided to do a spook off back in October, remember? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you and your friends in Michigan went to the Striker Cemetery and did some creepy, is- creepy stuff. Yes, we won. We won the spook off. You won, because that's what's important here, Jill. You won the spook off, yes. Mm -hmm. My friend Michelle Holland of mysticalminds.net and I went looking for ghosts in Chicagoland. And I will, and and that particular episode is episode 85 of Common Mystics. It was released in November. Yes, and it was the runner-up to our episode, which we won. (laughs) Right. We had second place on it, too. Yes. Exactly. But thank um, you for playing. That morning, I went to an antique store with a different friend. What friend? Jenny. Jenny B. Jenny B. Okay, go on. And so Elvis appears in unusual places for mom as an indicator for us, for me, right? True. And so I was walking through this antique store and I was seeing Elvis, 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 Elvis popping out at me. So I was like, oh, hi, mom. You know what I mean? But I didn't, I don't mm-hmm. say anything because it's it's kind of personal. Do you know what I mean? Like that's mom right. saying hi to me. But it seemed over the top and I didn't say anything. But then Jenny, who was with me, 
She is our reluctant psychic friend. Yes. So if Jenny is going to make a comment about it, it had to be like significant. Situation. Exactly. So after she brought it up, like, wow, Elvis is everywhere today. I was like, okay, I'm going to make a mental note of that because usually it's something that happens and I, I notice by myself and it's a message to me. But the fact that someone I was with noticed Elvis again and again, that seems significant. So I put that down and... And then that night, that evening, it, Michelle and I went on our adventure, and we were on Archer Avenue in the south suburbs. Now, she knew where we were going, and she was letting me kind of lead by my spideys. And if you go back and listen to the episode, we kind of talk about that. But at one point, she asked me to tell me what what I was feeling, and I was feeling pulled north of Archer to what the words that came to my mind were dumping ground. And I said, there's a dumping ground in that direction. And she like gasped, you know, and she's like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then she took me to a road called German Church Road. And it was in the suburb of Willow Springs. We stopped at a location. And as soon as we pulled into this drive and stopped the car and pointed towards this land, I felt evil and children, children dying, and we happened to be just feet from the place where Barbara and Patricia Grimes, just 15 and 12 years old, were discovered in early 1957. You guys, I really can't stress to you enough how triggering this story is. When I read the outline and watched a mini documentary about it, I cried myself to sleep singing Elvis. So if this this type of content, really, please take care while you listen. Or if you decide to skip this episode, we understand. <laughs> we try to be fun and light and amusing, but there's nothing fun, light, and amusing about this. So just hang in there. The story is important to us for obvious reasons that we're going to share with you, but it's an important story. And I want the girl's voice to be heard. Exactly. And it feels like the girls want their voices to be heard. And that's why we're doing this, even though it's not easy. Fair. Now tell me about the Grimes sisters, their background, their life, their family. So the Grimes family was a loving and close-knit family. And in the mid-1950s, they were living in the McKinley Park neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. Which is the neighborhood directly adjacent to where we talk about our mom growing up and the second Chicago fire happening. It's right adjacent to that. So it's literally a few blocks from where our mom grew up. True. On the south side. It was a working class neighborhood. I believe it still is. And so the Grimes were a poor family and they had seven children. In 1956, the family consisted of parents Joseph and Loretta and their seven children. And two of their daughters were Barbara, who was 15, and Patricia, who was 12. And those two, in particular, were very close. Hmm. That makes me happy. Barbara and Patricia were bright, vivacious teenagers, and they were well-liked. They loved going to the movies, and they loved mm-hmm. they loved going dancing, and they were also devoted fans of Elvis Presley. 
Oh, I love them. And as of December 1956, Barbara and Patricia Grimes had recently joined Elvis's official fan club. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I wonder if they get anything for that. I'm sure they did. Probably like oh, a, a signed it. picture or something. So I don't know if you know this, but 1956 was huge in rock and roll history. I do know this because <laughs> I am a huge Elvis fan. And as you know, Elvis is our daddy. <laughs> right. So 1956 was huge for Elvis in particular. His music career actually began in 1954, two years earlier, in Memphis, Tennessee. You might have heard of Sam Phillips of Sun Records. Yes, that's actually one of my favorite Elvis records is Elvis at Sun Records. Yeah, that rockabilly kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Well, Sam Phillips was a producer of Sun Records, and he was looking for a new sound, and here comes Elvis. Elvis's style was new and fresh in 1954. It was a mashup of gospel and country and rhythm and blues. Elvis was one of the granddaddies of rockabilly. But not only that, Elvis also had an emotional depth to his singing. And to his fans, it felt like he was pouring his heart and soul into the lyrics. And he was able to connect with his listeners on an emotional level. Mm. Now, a year later, 1955, Elvis leaves Sun Records and signs with a major record company, RCA. Heard of it. Mm-hmm. His very first single for RCA was a little ditty called Heartbreak Hotel. Have you heard of it? Oh, yeah. Heartbreak Hotel, his very first single for RCA, hit number one on January 1st, 1956. January 1st, 1956, he has his first number one hit with his first single with this large production company. That's amazing. Uh Uh-huh. That year, RCA would sell 10 million Presley records. This was the year Elvis's popularity exploded. He was on TV in 1956 11 times on various TV shows. And by the way, his fans liked what they saw. (laughs) Well, what is there not to like? I tell you what. He was a sensation because he didn't just sing, obviously. Elvis performed his songs in a very energetic and some would say sexually suggestive way that titillated the young people in the audience and terrified many of their parents. So, 1956, huge for Elvis Presley. Not only does he have his first number one in January, he's on TV. His fan base is huge. By November of 1956, his first movie comes out and is released at the movie theater. And it is entitled Love Me Tender, November 1956. It's one of my favorite Elvis movies. It's a good good one. It's a good one. Now, what does that have to do with Barbara and Patricia Crimes, you might ask? You going to ask? Jennifer, I'm going to ask you. Why don't you ask me? I'm going to ask you. Why don't you ask me? Jennifer, what does it have to do with this case and Barbara and Patricia, other than they were huge fans and they weren't alone? Well, on the night of December 28th, 1956, 15-year-old Barbara and 12-year-old Patricia went to see Love Me Tender at the movie theater in Brighton Park, which is a Chicago neighborhood right next door to McKinley Park where the girls lived. And the theater was located only a mile and a half away from the Grimes' home. This would be the 11th time the girls 
went to see that movie. Oh my god! <laughs> and I it love just them came so much. out the That's month so before. Me. That is so me. Like when I dig a song, I can listen to it and listen to it. Oh my and so, god! Like, I remember they, you doing that with "I Would Do Anything for Love" by Meatloaf. Stop Love. it! I. <laughs> why did you bring that I up? Was it's so, so embarrassing. Sick of that song. <laughs> I. Yeah, that was really embarrassing. I was in love. Anyway, shout anyway. out Tony Pintosi. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening. I walk into your bedroom after hearing I would do anything for love about 20 times in a row. And I walk into the bedroom. You're just laying there looking up at the ceiling. And I go, Jill, why are you listening to this song? And you go, it makes me think. <laughs> that I like is a 12. true Jill story. I was like 12, too. I know. We would have loved these girls, by the way. They would be our besties. Love these girls. Okay. So Mm -hmm. 11th time, December 28th, 1956, and they are going to the movies right next door to a movie theater only a mile and a half from their home. Now, they left their McKinley Park home around 7.30 p.m., and they promised their mother that they would be home before midnight. Now, Loretta Grimes, their mother, did not want them to go to see this movie again. I'm sure she was, like, seriously annoyed. (laughs) Well, she said it was too cold for them to be out. Because remember, it was December 28th. But the girls would not take no for an answer. And they promised to dress warmly. And they promised to be home by midnight. And they begged and begged and begged relentlessly until their mother finally gave in. I feel that energy. I know know what that's like. I do, too. Yeah. The girls had $2.50 on them. Now, in 1956, this was enough for them to see two movies, the first showing of Love Me Tender and the second showing of Love Me Tender right afterwards. It was, I know, it was also enough for them both to take the bus to the theater and back. Now, nobody knows whether they walked to the theater or whether they took the bus to the theater. And on different occasions going to the movie theater, they had done both. So Mm -hmm. it could have been either. Now... Witnesses did see them at the theater. A friend of theirs named Dorothy Weinert was sitting with her own sister in a row behind Barbara and Patricia in the theater. And Dorothy and her sister went home after the first showing of the movie. They didn't stay for the second showing. And Dorothy saw Barbara and Patricia in line for concessions when she left, presumably because the two, Barbara and Patricia, were going to stay for the second show. Right. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She also that would make sense. when she was asked, like, did were they acting strange? You know, she was like, no, they were in good spirits and there was nothing. Absolutely nothing seemed strange about them and their demeanor. I can just imagine them just being so excited to see it again. Mm-hmm. And like, it's a good movie just in itself. And watching Elvis perform, it's one of his mo- like performances that have depth. Mm-hmm. And it, really it like sounds it. like there are other kids there that they met. You know, it wasn't just that, right? They knew other kids who were also going to see it again. Well, from the neighborhood. Dorothy is a good example. Like, they were probably on the bus together. And they probably got off the bus together. Yeah. Okay. So, witnesses said that Barbara and Patricia did stay for the second showing of Love Me Tender, which ended early enough for the girls to be home by 11.45 that night. But... When the girls did not arrive home by midnight, their mother, Loretta, sent their older sister, Teresa, who was 17 years old, and their brother, Joey, who was 14, to wait at the closest bus stop for them. 
Teresa and Joey waited for the good part of an hour, and they waited for three buses to pass by. And when three successive buses had driven by without stopping, Teresa and Joey finally turned around and returned home without their sisters. In the meantime, Loretta, their mother, was contacting all their friends trying to locate them. At 2.15 in the morning on December 29th, Loretta Grimes filed missing persons report with the police for Barbara and Patricia. First of all, if this was me waiting for one of my asshole sisters coming off the bus, I would literally be like, I would be annoyed. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be scared at that point. Because it's cold. It's like, where the F are they? Yeah, are they like where did they go? Mm-hmm. Did, you know what I mean? Like, are they messing around at Dorothy's house or Judy's or whatever before coming home talking about the movie? Whatever, I would be seriously annoyed. I don't know when the fright came in, you know what I mean? But these were good kids, we weren't good kids, <laughs> so maybe as soon as they weren't where they were supposed to be, there was that anxiety. Well, their mother at 2 15 a.m. filed a missing report. So she was pretty pretty sure that something had happened to her girls. Oh, so that gosh. says a lot that her mother in the middle of the night called the cops. But the initial theory was that the girls had either run away from home or were staying with boyfriends or other friends. I, I don't even understand that theory. Like, to be honest with you, it doesn't seem like these are the type of girls that would do that, especially without calling and telling their parents. Well, their parents said absolutely not. Absolutely not would they do this. And not only that, they Christmas had just passed and they had all of these new Christmas gifts. And one of them was like their beloved AM radio. Like the girls just got an AM and they were so like they if they were going to run away, they would have taken their new AM radio. Absolutely, and they didn't pack any clothes. Like they just left with two dollars and fifty cents. Didn't pack a bag. So no, they didn't. They didn't run away, and they weren't staying with boyfriends. Also, they had to do a lot of begging and negotiating to just get out of the house. Exactly. So this would not be a situation where you didn't want to come home. You want to earn that trust to be able to to do that again. So just saying. So what happened? The disappearance of Patricia and Barbara. Mm -hmm. Tell me what was being considered at the time. Well, I told you already that there were some theories that they had just run away. They were just, you know, with friends or boyfriends. And actually, investigators didn't treat it as a serious missing persons case for a week. And I guess that's protocol. Like, they have to wait a certain amount of time. It's not. 24 hours. Okay, well, it... The, what I read, Absolutely not. what I read indicated that it was a week before the investigation took it seriously. But, but by day three, they were front page news on day three. So the media got a hold of this story before the police were taking it seriously, and that okay. caused a sensation. I will tell you right now, when Jinx went missing for three days, your cat. I was, yes, my cat, I was consulting the black arts on like hour 49, okay? <laughs> like for were. real. So the fact that like the police weren't doing anything, if I were their mother and father, I don't know what kind of hell I would raise, but I would be seriously, seriously bothered by that and, and probably calling the media, mm. right? 
Mm-hmm. I wouldn't put it past the parents to be like, hey, my kids have been missing and no one's doing anything about it. Well, the media outlets were all over it. They were Good. asking eyewitnesses to contact the police and all of these sightings started coming through. So now the cops are being inundated with all of these quote unquote sightings because of the media exposure. And a lot of the sightings were placing them at different, like, diners and entertainment venues, you know, bowling, places like that where kids hang out. Right. Right. Another thing is about the media in 1956 is, like, what would that look like? When we think of, like, a media blitz today, it's on the Internet. It's on your phone. But, like, if you seen something on the news in 1956 and you saw their pictures, it would be hard if you're not continuously seeing them the way we are today to be able to really identify these particular girls. Think about it. Mm. Right? I don't know, like, unless they're pictures are like up in stores or like, you know, are all over the paper, something like that. If they just flicked it on once, because in the 50s, you don't you have three stations. Mm -hmm. It's not like you can TiVo or record. After about a week, when the police started treating this case as a serious missing persons case, this case would become one of the largest missing person cases in the history of Cook County, Illinois. And hundreds of police officers were assigned to work the investigation full time. And Cook County officers were also assisted by officers in the surrounding suburbs. And a task force was formed entirely devoted to locating the girls. They dredged local canals and rivers, and the community got involved as well. And to your point, not only were the girls on the front page news, but there were more than 15,000 flyers that were distributed to local homes. And the churches got involved too. Parishioners were offering a $1,000 reward for any information leading to the girls' whereabouts. So again, like you've got flyers, you've got them on the news, and then there's more. Well, I would just say, like, I appreciate that type of energy a little late. That's all I'm going to say. That's a little late. Okay? That should have been happening, like, the next day, the 29th of December. That's the shit that should have... That's that's me turning it up to 11 when it needed to be turned up to an 11. Mm. It took a little bit of time for that. But here's the other thing that happened. Remember how I told you that there were all these sightings of where the girls were? One Mm -hmm. of the theories was that the girls had gone to Tennessee to find Elvis since they were such big fans. And there were actually, quote unquote, sightings of the girls in Nashville, believe it or not. That is the most, I mean, 12 years old to think about me at a 12 year old Jill trying to get to Nashville, Tennessee. She was with her 15 year old sister. Yeah, but I don't even think I could have got to grandma's house at 12 years old on the bus. You know what I mean? Like, what does that even mean? And we had the internet, kind of, when I was 12. On January 19th, 1957, Elvis Presley's estate issued a televised statement that read, If you are good Presley fans, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. Mm, That's so Elvis. The Elvis Presley estate got involved, urging kids to go home to their parents. And Elvis Presley himself made a direct radio plea to Barbara and Patricia Grimes, imploring them to return home to their mother. I just want to say what a moment that must be that that like, because they were such huge fans, 
to have Elvis even utter their names to know who they are. That must have been a huge thing. Well, and then here's the other ironic piece of that. Because of all this exposure, because Elvis was associated with this case, that only increased the publicity surrounding it and the number of leads that were flooding, flooding the police now. So now they have so many leads, it was almost impossible. Now it was like a needle in a haystack trying to sort through which leads are bogus and which leads are legit. And that became the problem here. So it was kind of ironic. I do want to talk about Chicagoland in the 50s. I know like most people wouldn't understand that Chicago was like a safe place, even though with all like the crime happening, like the organized crime that you associate with Chicago, like it was, it does feel like a small town, to be honest, especially in the 50s. Every, I mean, it was, I just feel like this type of crime wasn't happening all the time. It was mostly like, you know, we have a gangster missing or where's Jimmy Hoffa? You know what I mean? It's not like, where are the kids? That's exactly right. People left their doors open. And as big as Chicago is, it's organized by parishes and neighborhoods. So Mm -hmm. if you were in your neighborhood or right next door, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you'd think you'd be safe. Well, and I will say this, even living at grandma's house with mom, if I were sitting on the front porch smoking a cigarette Mm -hmm. and Jimmy walked out of his house going to the the shop and save, he'd be like, what do you guys need? Do you, you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of neighborhood vibe Mm -hmm. Chicago is. Hang in there, guys. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to unveil the first book in our series entitled Common Mystics Present Ghost on the Road, Volume 1, Murders and Mysterious Deaths. It's everything you love about Common Mystics and more. It's a retelling of 10 of our favorite stories from our pod with exciting extras. Extras like souvenirs, what we took away from the experience, and what to know if you go if you decide to travel in our footsteps. Pre-order the Kindle edition now. All other formats of the book will be available for purchase at Amazon.com on July 1st, 2023. Thanks, guys. Now back to the show. Anyway, so January 22nd, 1957, 25 days after the disappearance of Barbara and Patricia Grimes, a construction worker spotted something strange in the thawing snow behind a guardrail as he drove along the then rural country road called German Church Road in the suburb of Willow Springs. At first, he wasn't sure what he saw, and he thought it might be some mannequins that someone had discarded on the side of the road. But he went home and got his wife, and the two of them went back to the scene to just take a look around. And when his wife took a closer look, she fainted because what they had discovered were the naked, frozen bodies of Barbara and Patricia Grimes. Horrifying. The construction worker and his wife immediately reported their findings to the Willow Springs Police Department. I have to say two things. How typical that he's like, I don't know what to do. Let me go get my wife. Mm -hmm. Poor woman. Like, he did not need to involve her. He could have just went straight to the police. I just want to say the poor thing. To see that just would be horrifying. But just those thinking of those girls, those vivacious girls that loved Elvis, that were riding the bus, like, to see him and to go to the show over and over again. Just I think of that. And then what a... Like how all that stopped, all that potential, all that joy just stopped right there. Just, it's heartbreaking. 
Yeah. The girls' bodies were laying on a flat section of snow-covered ground just behind the guardrail near the embankment of a creek. Almost as if someone tossed a McDonald's cup out of the car window. Yeah, over the guardrail. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. Just discarded. Mm -hmm. Just like trash. Right. It's terrible. And investigators believed that the sisters had been driven to this location in a car and then their bodies had been dragged or lifted out of the vehicle and then just thrown behind the guardrail, like you said. I also want to make clear that this is a significant distance from their neighborhood. This is like outside of the city. Yes. Especially back in the 50s. Today, it's remote and kind of rural. But like in the 50s, there wasn't a lot of people going down that way. German church rural. I would not call this rural today. This is suburban today, but the area is a forest preserve. Exactly. So it's That's still forest. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it seems re- more remote than it is. And yes. it seems isolated. Right. And a good, significant distance away from their house. Probably... Probably more than five miles, I would say. And in Chicago, five miles, is, there's a lot going on within five miles. It's not like five country miles here. Right. Over 160 police officers from different suburban police departments immediately assisted, as well as volunteers and Forest Preserve staff conducting a search of the crime scene. <laughs> okay, that's way too many people to be trampling over and through a crime scene. No real evidence was found, and the search was later criticized because those organizing the search allowed untrained individuals to just walk all over the place and destroy evidence that might have been important. So, yeah. So let's go over the the fine people of Cook County's investigative prowess during the time. Is that the word, prowess? Prowess? prowess. Look at you. Anyway, first, number one, the first 48 hours is the most important. Mm. Secondly, once you find a crime scene, whether it's secondary or the original crime scene, don't invite people to come look. Yeah. You know, or even come do that. Yeah. Just secure it. No, you got it it from here. Step one, secure the crime scene. Yeah. If someone says, hey, what do we got here, boys? Just be like, move it along, please. Move it along. There are actually photographs taken of... Of the mass of cars and people parked there, like just looking over the guardrail. And you see that her father was brought to the scene to identify the girls. It's You can it still is, find this. It's heart-wrenching. There is a documentary that you're going to talk about later, but I will tell you the footage of the shit show that is surrounding this guardrail and then the appearance of the father having yeah. identified his babies yeah. is being held up and walked by police as if he were a lifeless puppet and just his face is is just haunting it's just the saddest one of the saddest images that i have ever seen it's just terrible and i just want to i just i just don't know what to do it's just such a sad 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 thing and on top of that he is purported to have said i told the police they didn't run away yeah i mean honestly i can't imagine being like a bystander in that situation i i like, can't either who runs like, towards what? this and, that oh anyway all right let's keep going you ready 
Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. So um, the autopsies. Mm. Autopsies were performed by three experienced forensic pathologists. And yet... Why three? Why are there three cooks in this room? Mm, well, maybe because it was really difficult to determine what happened to these girls. Because even though there were three, results were inconclusive. And they didn't all agree on what had happened. Part of the problem was there were no obvious fatal wounds discovered on either girl. Thank God for that. Mm-hmm. There were some wounds found, but nothing that would have killed them, and they were thought to be made post-mortem by animals. Mm. A toxicology reports revealed that neither girl had liquor, drugs, or any kind of poison of any kind in their system. So their toxicology came back 100% clean. Gotcha. Their, their clothing was never found. Oh, babies. Autopsies would also reveal that Barbara, the 15-year-old, the older of the two, had likely engaged in sexual intercourse around the time of her death, but no evidence of, like, quote-unquote, forcible molestation was found. Really? I'm just telling you what the report said. And the official death certificates of both Barbara and Patricia would list the cause of death as being murder via secondary shock due to the elements. In other words, they froze to death. But this was reached via the process of eliminating other factors. So it was kind of like last resort. They didn't find a wound. They didn't find any sort of trauma that would have killed them. Therefore, they made the assumption that they had both frozen to death. The experts did determine via an examination of the sisters' stomach contents that both girls had most likely died within approximately five hours of the time they had been last seen alive at the theater, thus fixing the time of death late evening of December 28th or early morning on December 29th, 1956. But these findings were disputed by the chief investigator for the Cook County Coroner's Office. His name was Harry Gloss. Now, Harry disagreed with the official autopsy findings. He contended that both girls had been alive at least until January 7th. He was looking at this sheet of ice that was on top of them, and he had some sort of scientific explanation that they had to have been alive at a certain time because of the snowfall, yada, yada, yada. The point being, he disagreed with the forensic pathologist, and he was very open about it. The other thing this guy, Harry Gloss, the chief investigator for the Cook County Coroner's Office, said was was that the investigators weren't disclosing all of the information regarding the disappearance of these girls. And some, he said, were lurid details of the case that were kept out of the spotlight to protect the girls' reputations and spare their mother's feelings. According to Gloss, there were allegations that say that the girls had been in the habit of spending free time outside bars on 36th Street and Archer Avenue, where they regularly persuaded older men to purchase liquor for them. Hey, hey, Harry Gloss. Gloss, is that it? Yeah. Gloss, is that what we're calling it? Yeah. yeah. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. How about that? How about that? How about that? Even if that were true, like, let's just say, even if that were true, that that had nothing to do with this situation. 
Right. And and that's so rightly so, perhaps. That that's why the the police did not consider that information as relevant to the investigation. He disagreed. And as a matter of fact, he was fired. He was fired for being so outspoken about his Yay. his statements against against the investigation. By the way, he was later deputized by the Cook County Sheriff, who did agree with him. Jesus. And fucking A. Harry really, Gloss, Cook County? Harry Gloss continued to work on the case without pay. So he might have been wrong, in our opinion, but he was passionate about solving this case. So you might ask, who was responsible for these horrendous crimes? Yeah. Yeah, huh huh Well, mm-hmm. the police asked the same questions, and approximately 300,000 people were questioned. Can you think about that for a minute? 300,000. Can you imagine the paperwork? 300,000 people were questioned. 2,000 suspects were subjected to serious interrogation. Okay, this Chicago style right here. (laughs) Chicago (laughs) style. (laughs) Serious interrogation of 2,000. That's a large group to seriously interrogate. And there were two arrests made. Charges were brought against two individuals who purportedly confessed to the crime. But that means they were beaten into confession. (laughs) Well, what it turns out is that the evidence on both of these culprits fell through. And one of them in particular, his name was Edward Bedwell, said that he his confession had been coerced out of him. Now, Bedwell— That's Chicago style. That is, that's exactly, that's exactly what, what we were talking that, about. Mm-hmm. And, and for instance, his confession didn't make any sense, given the facts of the case. Number one yeah. was Bedwell's cognitive abilities had been called into question. So he wasn't Yeah, because he like, was like, stop hitting me. Stop hitting me. Ow, ow. Oh, yeah, I did it. I did it. He was illiterate. And yet his confession was 14 written pages long. (laughs) He might have had a little help. Bedwell's confession didn't match the facts of the case. For example, he said that he had been drinking with the girls before he murdered them. But, of course, investigators knew that their toxicology was clean. The girls weren't drinking. So anyway, yeah, it was bogus. And at least a couple people under the serious interrogation of the Chicago PD confessed and then it fell through. But by the way, and I love this about her, Loretta Grimes, the mother of the girls, Barbara and Patricia, she went up to Bedwell's mom and said, I know your boy didn't do this. Oh, my God. I love her. Yeah. Talk about haunting images. Watching Loretta Grimes plead for her children back. My God. My God. Yeah. I, oh, In the end, no one was ever brought to trial for the murders of Barbara and Patricia Grimes. And to this day, to this day, the case remains unsolved, Jill. Jennifer, I think you solved this case. (laughs) I I wouldn't say that. I think you solved it. But here's the thing. Over the years, this case, this Grimes case, has been compared to other Chicago crimes against multiple children. One... So this one was called the Peterson Schusler murders. Now, this happened in 1955. This was the year before Barbara and Patricia's disappearance and murder. Now, 
this is what happened. John Schusler, age 13, his brother Anton Jr., age 11, and their friend Bobby Peterson, age 14, were living in a middle-class neighborhood of Jefferson Park on the north side of Chicago in 1955. This was the year before the Grimes' disappearance and murder. Now, on the afternoon of Sunday, October 16, 1955, John and Anton Schusler and Bobby Peterson left together, taking the train downtown to see a matinee showing of the Disney movie called The African Lion at the Loop Theater located on State Street. They never returned home. Two days later, on October 18, 1955, their naked bodies were found in a ditch in the Robinson Woods Forest Preserve on the northwest side of Chicago. So you see the connection already. Obviously, yeah. The case went unsolved for years, and then in 1977, 1977, the FBI was working together with the Chicago PD over the disappearance of the Brock Candy heiress, Helen Brock, who disappeared in 1977, and related arson crimes at local horse stables in the area. And that's when they came across a suspect by the name of Kenneth Hansen. In August of 1994, Kenneth Hansen was brought to trial for the murder of the Peterson Schusler boys in 1955 because Hansen— 40 years later. Yes. Hansen was working at the Idle Hour stables where the boys' bodies were found. In 1995, Hansen, who was then 61 years old, was convicted based on the secondhand testimony of the stable hands and others who knew him. See, according to the witnesses— Hansen would threaten the stable boys by saying he would kill them and leave them in a ditch like he did with the Schusler-Peterson boys. He would threaten wow. them that way. Hansen's first conviction was overturned, but he, he was convicted at a second trial in 2002, and he died in prison in 2007 while serving a 200-year sentence. He maintained his innocence until the end. Now, Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't—I'm not digging that. He's a sick fuck. Even if he, like, who says that? Like, I know. Even if, like, I know. Like, why would you ever I know. say that? I know. I'm sorry. That I know. Go on. Terrible. So you might ask, are the Peterson Schusler murders and the Grimes murders linked? A lot of people have been asking that question in recent years, Jill. The murders occurred about a year apart. Both occurred on the outskirts of Chicago. In both sets of murders, the victims were unclad and sexually assaulted and dumped in a forested area. Now, here's what gave me goosebumps when I was reading about this. In November 2022, 2022, this is a year before Michelle and I bumped Mm -hmm. into this story. WGN-TV in Chicago aired a 30-minute documentary on the Grimes murders. That's the one you're referring to that you can still Google and find. It's called Innocence Lost. The Grimes sisters. There's also an Innocence Lost, and I believe it's regarding the boys. Oh. So there's one on each case. And that documentary in November of 2022 describes how retired police officers, citizen detectives, and cold case investigators have been studying this case for years, this case meaning the Grimes case. And recently, they came upon a new lead, Jill. 
Tell me. Ken Hansen not only operated the Idle Hour stables on the north side near where the Peterson Schusler boys were found, but also several stables on the south side in the Willow Springs area where the Grimes sisters were found. And in fact, in 1955, he was leasing the actual property where the girls were found. Mm. The 2022 documentary also discusses the notes of an old interview. Remember? The 300,000 people questioned. Somebody went through that paperwork. And one of those interviews was read over. And it was part of the initial investigation of the girl's appearance. And it was the interview of a young man who lived in the McKinley Park neighborhood where the Grimes family lived. And who had been at the theater the night of Barbara and Patricia's disappearance. Jill... This young man, when questioned by the police, said that he did not know the Grimes sisters. They asked who he was there at the theater with that night. And he said that he was there with his boss. And they asked him, who is your boss? He said, Kenneth Hansen. Wow. Kenneth Hansen was at the Brighton Park movie theater on the same night that Barbara and Patricia Grimes were there the night they disappeared. I didn't uncover that. This was in that documentary in November of 2022, but there's more that I stumbled across. In another recent article published in October of 2022 in NewCity.com, author Richard Lindbergh discusses a theory from his book entitled Shattered Sense of Innocence, the 1955 Murders of Three Chicago Children. And he discusses Kenneth Hansen's connection to a notorious horseman named Silas Jane. Now, Silas Jane was the nastiest type of human you can ever imagine. He was a- That is not in the outline. That is not in the outline. (laughs) Where's she going with this? He was just a piece of shit person. He was a stable owner and a horse trainer, but he was heavily involved in criminal activity, including fraud, intimidation, arson, and murder. Silas Jane employed Kenneth Hansen at the Idle Hour Stables. He assisted in covering up the murder of the three boys when they were killed on his property. Also, his Idle Hour stables was patronized by prominent Chicago gangsters and other criminals. This author, Richard Lindbergh, suggests that Silas, Silas Jaynes, and by association, Kenneth Hansen, were part of a criminal ring which included a pedophile ring that operated in the Chicago area in the 1950s. Jill, was Kenneth Hansen going to the movie theaters looking for young people to snatch, specifically? I kind of, yeah, I think so. And I think that he used his employee as a reason to be there. So if he was there acting suspicious, he'd be like, well, I was here with my with my employee. I was waiting for him in the car or whatever. Right. Right. It's almost like he went fishing. He went fishing yeah, was, with with his decoy, which would have been one mm. of the stable hands that he worked with. Absolutely. I, yeah. I don't I'm I'm just I'm just numb at this point. Let me ask you a question. Mm, what is it? So do you think that Kenneth Hansen was responsible for the kidnapping of these girls? Yes, one hundred percent yes. 
Do you think that Kenneth Hansen delivered these girls to be a part of a pedophile ring? I do. I think he delivered these girls to someone who was looking for girls. Agreed. To abuse and, yeah. But I think they were discarded the 29th. I don't think they were discarded five days later. I think that they were— Oh, you mean you don't agree with Henry Gloss's theory? Oh, no. I yeah, nothing no, about Henry Gloss I could no, give a shit I, about. Like, no, I think it happened the fall—yeah, during that night, for sure. Exactly. They were There was a hoot and a holler with some nasty fucks that night somewhere in Chicago. They took the girls there, and then he discarded them on land. The only thing that I am—that I'm wondering, even though that this is, like, his land, like, I feel like— he he was familiar with the, the drop-off sites yep. for the boys and the girls. Yes. And they were in a remote enough location, as we said, especially in the 50s, right. to just toss them out of the car mm-hmm. or to get them out of the car without being seen. Mm-hmm. But why he didn't hide them, like, better, I will never know. Exactly. I don't know either. That's it a It just seems like me. he had— the only thing that I can think of is that he really didn't see these children as people. Like, it, it was almost like trash. Like, literally throwing trash like a cigarette butt out of your car window. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. Because if you really thought of them as, like, people, not just throwing up the car window, but to hide them because someone's going to be looking for them. It's like he lacked that even sense that someone's going to come caring about them. I started to do some research on that idea of a pedophile ring of criminals in Chicagoland in the 1950s, and I stopped, one, because I didn't want to find anything, and two, because they didn't want that information on my computer, like my searches were getting pretty dark. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. But my thinking is that if this is true— <laughs> there are a lot of true things that you will never find evidence of. And right. I think this is one of them. If this is true, I think that the Peterson Schusler boys and the Grimes sisters were two of the first because they were so sloppy in the way that they were discarded. And I think that this probably continued and they probably got smarter about how you know what I mean about Who? the crimes? Uh, this ring. I'm just saying, like, no, 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 no. I'm saying, I'm saying they got smarter about who they were taking, perhaps, right? Yeah, and how and what they, they were, were just yes, yes, exactly. That's what I think. Okay, I have another question for you. What's your question? The November 2022 series from WGN yeah. and the book describing the pedophile ring. Why? Are the Grimes still, the Grimes girls, Barbara and Patricia, still in need of a voice? Yeah, I was asking myself the same question because we try to do stories about people who need a voice. And it it appears that the Grimes from the very next day of their disappearance have been big news. Do you know what I mean? I mean, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley was talking about them on the radio. So why do they need need a voice. And one thing that came out to me in my mind's eye as I was watching this documentary from 2022 was that one of the things they bring up is the question of whether or not they should exhume the girls. 
whether or not they should exhume the girls and check under their fingernails for DNA because Kenneth Hansen's DNA is in a, a register, an online, you know, mm. the, the cops have it. Yeah. Yeah. So Codis. should they do that? And I feel strongly that they shouldn't. I, I don't Agreed. think the girls want to be exhumed. I don't think it's necessary. It at wouldn't this point. solve anything. It wouldn't save any more children. Like at yeah. this point, yeah, a hundred percent. No, don't do that. Also, I th- and you've already addressed this, but I also think it is important that we address that speculation about their character. It it doesn't even matter, like you said. You know what I mean? I, I you know honestly, this kind of thing really does piss me off because it's irrelevant to the case. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if these girls were buying alcohol. It doesn't matter if these girls were hanging out with boys. They are still victims of a crime. Right. And I feel like people get a false sense of security that like, oh, like a car accident happened. Oh, well, they were speeding. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, something to that effect. Like, oh, this isesn't just a random thing. Mm -hmm. This can't just happen to anyone. But in reality, it did. These intuitively... These are, I know that these were really good girls. Mm -hmm. I know that. Mm -hmm. I know that whatever trauma the examiners had saw on Barbara's body was not something that she was a willing participant of. And I feel so sad inside that not only would someone... A, say, we know a lot more than you know, people. And the reason why the police weren't looking at this as such is because these weren't the, the innocent little girls that you believe them to right. be. I, I, I find that repulsive mm. because the reality is you dropped the ball, the Chicago police. It's okay that you did. Hey, I have mixed feelings about you. I'm just saying, you dropped the ball. Don't make these girls some kind of like moral lesson. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, you you fucked up, man. You fucked up. Yeah, so anyway, that is the story of the Grime sisters. Bottom line is that I have a bottom line. What's your bottom line? What put me to sleep after cry- like I really was crying hard and singing Love Me Tender. Like I'm not kidding. Um what put me to sleep was the awareness I got from Loretta, their mom, when she passed to be reunited with her girls. Mm. It just brought me so much peace to know, like, that was in the past. And right now, they're everyone's fine. They're just waiting for their older sister, the last one, to come home. Right. They do have one sibling who is still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So... So thank you for talking to me about this. This was a difficult a difficult story to discuss. Hopefully the next one will be a little more lighthearted. Well, thank you for doing it because it, it really is a hard story and hard to research. And I'm sorry I get so belligerent when I'm when I'm angry, but this they're just such there's just such good girls know, and this didn't have to happen. I know. And we would have loved them. I, I know we would have we would have loved them. We would have been mm-hmm. at the movies with them. 11, oh 12, God. 13, 14 times. Yeah. Elvis? 100. Yeah. I'll be there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm, all right. Well, guys, thanks for listening. I'm sorry. Just know that they're okay. You know, that this is the past and they, they're they at peace. Let's leave them at peace. Right, let's tell the people where they can find us. So if you want more uplifting stories, please check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on our socials at commonmysticspod. Yeah. And thank you so much for listening. And check us out wherever you're listening to your favorite podcasts. 
please like, subscribe, share, and download. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Good night. Good night. This has been a Common Mystics Media production. Editing done by Yokai Audio, Kalamazoo, Michigan.